You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 5. Focus today will be on verses 1 through 18. We'll be reading John 5, 1 through 24. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he, he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, grant grace so that we would not hear your word of grace and your commands, your gospel and your law, as this lame man does. But we would receive them with gratitude. And instead of blame, praise. That there wouldn't just be knowledge in our head as to who Jesus is, but there would be love in our hearts for who He is and trust in Him. I pray that we wouldn't see the significance of this such that we hate Jesus, wish Him dead. And I pray You would grant grace here for those who do not believe For those who do not receive Christ. For those who do not bow before Him as Lord. For those who do not hear, trust, that they would recognize that if they do not, they stand with the Jews here who are against your King. And that in perceiving that, you would be softening their heart and granting them grace, Father. That would be our cry today. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Verse 5, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Thus begins what is referred to as the festival cycle running from chapters 5 through chapters 10. Festival cycle. Cycle begins with an unnamed feast. There was a feast of the Jews. Chapter 6, we do find ourselves back in Galilee, but we're there anticipating Passover soon to take place. Chapter 6, verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Chapter 7, we're back in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. Chapter 7 and verse 2. And then finally we'll come to chapter 10. And chapter 10 and verse 22 we have the Feast of Dedication. Or what you probably know as Hanukkah. So these chapters, chapters 5 through 10, we have four feasts and four signs. The next four signs. And in all of this... There is constant conflict between Jesus and the Jews. These feasts are to be celebrations of God's redeeming love and covenant faithfulness to His people. And everything that they are speaking of and testifying of and anticipating is come in their presence And they rail against it. A celebration is supposed to be happening. And they're carrying on as if they are celebrating. And they're hating everything that those celebrations signify as it's right there in their midst. 
They are truly the children of those who wandered in the wilderness. Manna has fallen from heaven and they grumble. And the intensity of the conflict quickly reaches peak level with this very first feast and very first sign as they're laid out in this festival cycle. They continue to build until we come to that final feast, the Passover in chapter 13, the last one John speaks of where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. Chapter 13 onwards, we're dealing with the last two days of Jesus' life and those following His resurrection. Final Passover, chapter 13, and it is in view in chapter 11, verse 55, chapter 12, verse 1, they mention that Passover. So you're right at the cusp of that final Passover happening in chapter 13. And as that's on the horizon, you have the final sign of the book of signs. The raising of Lazarus. And following that sign, we read, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Him, but also to see Lazarus, whom He had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That's chapter 12, 9 through 11. So those murderous desires that reached their climax at that point have their inception right here with this feast approximately two years plus from that Passover already begins right here. What feast is this? There was a feast of the Jews. We're not told. It's not important. We don't need to know. What we do know is that a feast is happening and Jesus comes to the pool of Bethesda. This pool is just north of the temple complex, north of the sheep gate that Nehemiah mentions. It is highly probable that some excavations in the 19th century, just east of the Church of St. Anne's, a French Catholic church that exists there now, just east of it, that they discovered the Pool of Bethesda. That's what everyone calls it, attests to it as now. It's approximately the size of a football field. It has a roofed porch, colonnades, columns holding this roofed area up on all four sides, and it's divided in the middle by a fifth colonnade, five roofed colonnades. And as it divides it, it very likely, we don't know exactly what this pool was about, but it seems very likely this was a public bath. And so you had that middle partition dividing a women's area and a men's area. It was also about 20 feet deep. And we see this multitude of invalid, invalids gathered there, which lends towards the idea that this was a public bath, 
uh, of sorts. And so here we are, we're at this pool, multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. We instantly know why John has brought us here. If you have any clue at all, if you can read John 1, 1, uh, John 1 through 4, if you've read any of the Gospels, if you know anything, you know why John has brought us here. Jesus is going to do something. That's clear. The question is, why are they here? A multitude of invalids at this pool. Why are they here? Verse 4 gives you the answer. Gives you an answer. Read it. Now, unless you have a King James or a New American Standard, the only place you're finding verse 4 right now is in your footnotes. And if you look at the New American Standard, you'll notice that the last part of verse 3, all the way to the end of verse 4, is in brackets. And it has an explanatory footnote accompanying it. I'm wondering how many of you even noticed, as we're reading through it, uh, where was, well, verse 4, where'd that go? If you did, if you even maybe just sensed, something, something now that I think about it, was missing there. If you did, it's probably because you grew up hearing the King James. These words are only found in some manuscripts. The later ones, not the earlier ones, not the best ones. They're only found in some manuscripts. And in the manuscripts that they are found in, they differ quite, quite a bit. There's quite a bit of difference between one and the other that do contain them. And further, the vocabulary here is notably different than John's normal usage. And further, the explanation given in, the, uh, in those texts is theologically strange as a fact, of, as, as it is said as fact, rather than explanation. It's strange. And so most scholars, I along with them, do not regard these words as original to the inspired text. Don't hold them, regard them as Scripture. They're very likely, and it's, it's very important that you recognize how easy things like this are, are for textual scholars to see. It's very plain when we have instances like this that happen, something's, something's not right. It's not, it's not a guess. So it's very likely this is an editorial gloss. This is the kind of thing where we have, we have some proof of things like this happening. Someone wrote an explanation in the margin. Why is this happening? And then some copyist comes along. These are hand-copied manuscripts that they took extreme care of. But often someone's reading what they're copying, and then they check it. But some, at some point, this editorial gloss, this side note, gets into one manuscript, maybe two. And copies are made of that copy. But it's an explanatory note, and so the next copy says, wait a second, I, I read that, a note like that in another manuscript, and it said it a little different, and things begin to vary, and you have this family of manuscripts that has this incorporated explanation, and you notice 
It's this whole pool of manuscripts that have it, and none of these other manuscript families have that. And yet, I want to say it is highly likely then that this gloss, this explanation that's made its way into the text is true as an explanation, very likely true, or close to true, as an explanation to why they did gather there in a multitude. So I don't believe this is telling us the fact of why they gathered there. I think it's telling us what they believed and thus why they gathered there. The most likely explanation for what's happening is that these pools were fed by a natural spring or an artesian well or even the man-made stone predominant way that they were fed. Uh, stone passageway that led to these that because of how it was constructed there was some way that the waters occasionally became stirred. And so some folklore begins to form around this and some psychosomatic kind of uh, instances of healing then lend themselves towards believing that this pool has these kind of uh, instances. And it's striking that that it really was probably on a folklore level is there's no kind of attestation uh, written recorded of this. This was kind of the word of mouth kind of folk belief among the people. Never had any kind of uh, um, acceptance or uh, authorization from the leadership or the elite that this was so. So here we are. We're at this pool. There's this multitude of invalids gathered around. And no matter how you take it, this pool was inefficient at best. More likely, it's totally ineffective altogether. And think about this. If you just begin to reflect, think you can do this. And think of how often John has brought water forward in his narrative so far. This is the third instance of failed water we've encountered so far in John. The water for purification at the wedding feast proved ineffective, left alone, to bring in the wine of the new covenant, as it were. The water at Jacob's well could not satisfy the woman's thirst. And the water at this pool proves ineffective for multitudes. And Jesus... Unlike modern faith healers, visits the sick ward. Indeed, we, we might even go beyond that to say he goes to the healing service and he visits those that have been isolated and are not part of the show. Johnny Erickson Tata became quadriplegic at age 17. She hoped and longed for healing, believing it was so, went to a Catherine Coleman healing service. If you don't know Catherine Coleman, think Benny Hinn, except a woman, and years earlier. That's what it was. Goes to the healing service, and she is taken to the wheelchair section. A spotlight goes over the crowd. Highlighting those claiming to be healed. 
She said the spotlight never shone on the wheelchair section. Some of you may be familiar with Justin Peters. Has cerebral palsy. Same experience. Same testimony. But Jesus, unlike Benny Hinn, or Todd White, or Bill Johnson, goes to the sick ward. He is not afraid of being discredited or ousted as a fraud. And from this multitude now, John singles out one man in particular. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. John singles him out because Jesus singles him out. When Jesus saw him lying there. This is no easy case. This is a man who's been an invalid for 38 years. Likely some form of extreme uh, weakness or paralysis of some sort. And Jesus, seeing this man, knowing that he's been there a long time, doesn't pass him by, he engages him. Jesus shines a spotlight on the wheelchair section. And Jesus asked him, verse 6, do you want to be healed? Now, is that a nonsense question? Do you want to be healed? When I was in seminary, one of my classmates, who was a former inmate, was, while he was taking studies, serving at a shelter, managing it, in Shreveport, Louisiana. So I went there with him one day to preach, and as we're nearing the shelter... There's a panhandler receiving money, and my friend leans out of his window and is yelling, don't give him any money. You see his partner up there in the under, underpass, they work this corner, they work together, and they're going to use your money to buy drugs. If they need help, they can go to the shelter. They don't want it. Some people love their handicaps. They are the lever by which they gain leverage in the world. They're not a handicap to them at all. They are often victimhood handicaps. They're elevated to a status, a status of power, and thus not easily relinquished. And there's a bit of that in every one of us. Instead of getting out of our, getting over our diseases, we, what we really often want is to get out of them everything that we can. Milk them for all that they're worth. This man has been an invalid for 38 years. Does he really want to be healed? The question both pierces the heart and it exposes the ineffectiveness of this pool. Do you really want to be healed? Now, this man has not initiated this conversation. He does not know who Jesus is, so we're not sure of the exact tone with which he answered. But I don't think it a big stretch to infer from the way the rest of this encounter goes that there was a crotchety, grumpy undertone to his answer. It begins with a polite sir. Sir, just read it flat. I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. 
And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now, to be fair, if I'm correct, this man has no clue who Jesus is, and he has no clue why Jesus asked this. But once he does know who Jesus is, it doesn't get better, it gets worse. So I don't give him a whole lot of credit for how he responded to this question at this point. If anything, I think it was probably a, do I want to get healed? I'm here. Been here 38 years. I just can't get there in time. Sir. Never mind any irritableness that might have been there. That's my guess. think the text supports it, but it is an, it's an inference. Never mind that, Jesus commands them, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Remember, Jesus chose this man. There is a multitude there, and he chose that man. He chose the man that, it's going to be clear, he has his portable, poor man's straw mat with him. He chooses the man with the mat, and he doesn't just say to him, get up and walk. He says to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Out of everything that Jesus is doing and saying here, take up your bed is the controversial point. The whole plot line hangs on that phrase, take up your bed. This is no oops. This is intentional. Jesus has not forgotten what day of the week it is. Jesus commands all this, and at once the man's healed and he obeys, verse 9. Jesus speaks with the same kind of authority as the one who called everything that is into being out of nothing. He speaks healing out of sickness. Indeed, there's a way in which this kind of speaking is greater than what you see in Genesis 1 through 3. Calling something into being out of nothing, for God requires speaking. For this kind of thing to happen and everything that it signifies and what it's about and moving towards, the Word had to become flesh and bleed. He's undoing the curse brought on man Because of sin. And it's now that we see the Jews come on the scene. And as they come on the scene, it's then that we learn, verse 9, it's the Sabbath. Now that day was the Sabbath. And the Jews, verse 10, the Jews, are identical to the Jews that we encountered in 119 to 18. 119, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? 218, following the cleansing of the temple. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In such instances, this would be the leadership. So either the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees, but those who are esteemed by the people, positions of leadership, That's who is questioning this man. Now, to their credit, they probably don't know at this point that that man's just been healed. 
That's the man who was an invalid for 38 years that's walking and carrying his mat. They probably don't know that. But to their condemnation, once they do know, it doesn't get any better. It just gets worse. They just see a man at this point carrying his bedroll down the street. And they let him know that such behavior is not lawful on the Sabbath. What do they mean by lawful? The Sabbath command, as given at Sinai in Exodus chapter 28 through 11, the fourth commandment, forbids work on the seventh day because of the precedence God set in the six days of creation and resting on the Sabbath. The command as it lies in Deuteronomy when Moses is renewing covenant is there rooted in his delivering them from slavery and bondage in Egypt to come into this land of promise and rest. Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. And it isn't long after the giving of this command at Sinai that we find the Sabbath broken by a man gathering sticks. And with divine authorization, they stone him. Numbers 15, 32 through 36. So perhaps we should be grateful. They're just questioning him. They're not stoning him. But the text that really would have been in their mind as this not being lawful would have, I have little doubt, been John, uh, Jeremiah 17. Multiple times there, Yahweh condemns His people for bearing burdens on the Sabbath. Thus says Yahweh, take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day as holy as I commanded your fathers. And Yahweh goes on to tell them, the magnitude of obedience to this command and what's involved, saying, But if you listen to me, declares Yahweh, and bring in no burden by the gates of this city on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it, then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, And this city shall be inhabited forever. And the people shall come from the cities of Judah and from places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from Shephelah, from the hill country and from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and frankincense and bringing thank offerings to the house of Yahweh. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and to enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, Then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be extinguished, not be quenched. These Jews saw with biblical grounding in God's law, exile is happening because of Sabbath breaking and restoration promised in conjunction with Sabbath keeping. Where they messed up in this is in regard to a sinful ignorance 
and a sinful imagination. The ignorance, I, I trust, will be clear shortly. Let's just focus on the sinful imagination that's involved here. These Jews were the forefathers of those who would shortly write out 39 ways that the Sabbath could be broken. 39 ways. Likely developed from the oral tradition already in place at this point. The command, as it was given in Jeremiah, didn't define work as bearing a burden. Work equals bearing a burden. It was using bearing a burden as an image of what work was. So whenever a mother was carrying her two-month-old child, that on the Sabbath, that would not constitute work. But if a mason was carrying his tools to do a job, or if the vendor was moving out his cart to sell his wares, well, that would clearly be bearing a burden. That would be work. Bearing a burden equals work as an image of what work is. Not definitionally as if you're, if you're carrying a burden, that is work. No. Is your work imaged forth as bearing a burden? Hope that's plain. So the only thing that isn't lawful that's going on on the Sabbath day here is they're saying that that man taking up his bed isn't lawful. It might have been unlawful if he was a mattress salesman and was making a delivery. Then it would have been unlawful. As it is, no work here. No vocation, no occupation. This is not work. Now, in his defense towards them, their accusation, in his defense, he doesn't argue law. He argues blame. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. While we have, we, we have to infer and guess about the man's exact interaction with Jesus, that isn't exactly clear. I don't think you have to guess at all here how he says that man because of how his next interaction with them unfolds. His next interaction tells you how he's responding, thinking, acting right here. He's passing on blame. It begins to become apparent, as Leon Morris writes, the man was not the stuff out of which heroes are made. He put the whole blame on the shoulders of him who had healed him. And I believe John, to make this crystal clear to you, has an instance so similar that happens on the Sabbath as far as the encounters and interactions that follow in chapter 9 and the, the blind man that's healed there. Just read how different his responses were. The Pharisees ask him, chapter 9, verse uh, 16, 17, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He replied, he is a prophet. When they summon the man a second time, they say to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answers, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. But then he quickly goes on to say, I'll know, I'll know everything. It's a humble reply, but he goes on to say, he knows he's not a sinner. 
Why, this is an amazing thing. He's speaking to the same authorities. This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he's opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Jesus, after hearing that because of this, they've put him out. They've cast him out. Jesus finds him and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it's he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe and worshipped him. That blind man was given double sight. This lame man remains spiritually invalid. Spiritually dead. He gives no praise to Jesus. He blames him. Who is the man, they demand? They don't know. He doesn't either. Verse 13. The man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. And note, as they ask who... They don't, they don't repeat the full command that was given. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? They don't have any interest. Who's the man who told you, get up and you walked? They don't have any interest in Jesus healing a man who is lame. They want to know who told you to take up your bed. The walking isn't any problem either. It's just that you've got your bed and then you're walking. Who told you to take up your bed and walk? The one who spoke creation into existence and then rested has spoken this anticipation of new creation into existence and given this man rest from his burden. And they don't know who He is. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was in the world. And the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. This sign is being done so that they might know who. And they don't know. Even the man healed doesn't know. And Jesus will make it clear to them, though. He finds the man in the temple and says to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Generally speaking, sin lies under every kind of suffering. All suffering, all sickness, all disease, 
all disasters. Underneath them all is Adam's sin. Now further, sometimes specific suffering is due to specific sin. It seems to be the implication here. Go and sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. I believe he's saying repent or perish. That's the junction you've come to with this encounter with me. Repent or perish. This man was paralyzed 38 years because of a sin. Repent or it will be eternal suffering. Anytime we look at an instance like this, our introspective souls begin to tremble. Is this suffering because of that sin? Will this sin lead to suffering? Let me give you five questions to ask yourself when you begin to think this way. First, is there a natural organic connection between your sin and your suffering? If so, then yes, your suffering is due to that sin. If you have liver disease and you've been a heavy drunk drinker, you've been a drunkard for years, yes, your suffering is due to your sin. Second, if it's no, that's not the case, then ask yourself, second, do I have any special revelation telling me that this suffering is due to that sin? And let me assure you, even if you say yes, the answer is no. We got a different conversation we need to have then. Don't have time for that now, but the answer is no. But then third, ask yourself this. Do you have any special revelation at all concerning the matter? And the answer then is, yes, you do. You have some special revelation. You have, you have several places, but you can just take this one. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to Yahweh our God. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So fourth, knowing that, what should you do? If you're sick and you start to see sin, sickness is sobering. You're sick and you start to see sin, you don't know if there's any connection You're sick, you see sin, what should you do? Repent! It doesn't matter if there's a connection. And do you realize the wickedness that says, if this is due to the sin, then then you get concerned rather than if it's just sin? You weren't that concerned about it? But now if there's a consequence, don't be so hard on your children when you see that same behavior. All sickness is for sanctification. You cannot know if there's any, most of the time, unless there's that plain, obvious, natural, organic connection between your sin and the suffering, you can't, not, you can't know. But all sickness should be cause for sanctification and every healing should result in holiness 
And whenever there is no sickness, whenever there is no healing, when all is blessed, then you should be pursuing holiness and sanctification all the same. Repenting of every sin as it comes on your radar. With this warning in hand, what does this man do? The man went away. No. Let's look at the command again. Sin no more, then nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. He ingratiates himself with the Jews, showing no gratitude towards the grace of Christ. He learns who it is, he reports it so that it's Jesus and no longer he who's under scrutiny for breaking the Sabbath. This man knows it's, with, knows it's Jesus, they now know it's Jesus, and yet they still don't really know who it is that said to the man, get up, take up your bed and walk. These are the very authorities that the previous Passover, as Jesus cleanses the temple, demand a sign Now, they have a sign, and it doesn't diffuse the conflict. It makes it more volatile. But let's back up. The Jews learned it's Jesus, who's told this man to take up his bed and walk, and that is why we're told, this is why they were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, verse 16. And this persecution involves the same kind of questioning and accusations, no doubt intensified, that were brought against the man. And that can be seen in that we're told Jesus answered them. And now consider all the ways Jesus could have answered them first. Jesus could have pointed out that their definition of work was nothing more than their definition of work. It wasn't God's. It was the traditions of man, not the law of God, that were being broken in his command. It's something they made up. Second, he could have pointed out that mercy and compassion are not simply permissible on the Sabbath. They are the fulfilling of the law. All the law hangs on this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Mercy and compassion are not contrary to the law. They are the essence and meaning. The telos. They are all that the law is. Third, he could, he could have pointed out that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That this day was a day of rest from burdens. And here Jesus is. And he's given this man rest. And they want to put a burden on him. They would have been happier if his burden remained on him. They had no concern for the bedridden. Their only concern was for the bed. They didn't care that Jesus told this man, get up, who had been paralyzed. They only cared that, it, they, that he told them, take up your bed. That's their concern. The Sabbath is a continual point of contention between Jesus and the authorities. All the Gospels, again and again. And Jesus will use all of these answers to their accusations. But at this point, he does something astonishingly different than even all of those. Verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. 
Previously, Jesus spoke of God as his Father after cleansing the temple, and it didn't cause any ruckus. Take these things away. Do not make my Father's house a house of trade, 2.16. No indication that that caused a stir. But this instance, there is no mistaking what Jesus is saying when he speaks of God as his Father. And they come undone. And it's, this, is, this will be exactly the charge that they bring against him to get him crucified. Or to pursue getting him crucified. They're duplicitous in that. That's, that's in the future. When such language of God as Father is used in the Old Testament, it is almost always used metaphorically for God's relation to Israel corporately. Jesus' usage here is strikingly unique. It is utter, no one says Father the way Jesus is, unless he's insane. No one says it with truth and integrity like Jesus does. He says it in an utterly unique way, even when we do, and we truly say God is our Father. This is why Jesus can say, my Father and your Father. He says it in a way that's utterly unique. See this, remember, God created six days resting on the Sabbath. But when He rested from His work of creation, He didn't cease being God. If He stopped being God, the very creation He's brought into existence would unravel. The Father is continually working and Jesus says, I am working. The reason Jesus' work doesn't count as work is because it is divine work. Two colossal doctrines that are not discussed enough underlie what's happening here. They found grounding here. First is the doctrine of inseparable operations. Often unpacked by the Latin phrase, opera trinitatis ad extra indivisu sunt, which translated means something like the external works of the Trinity are indivisible. Where you see one member of the Trinity working, the others are there working. They don't ever work in isolation, all their external works are indivisible. So, when the Father is pouring out His wrath on the Son at the cross, He is also being pleased by the obedience of the Son and satisfied with the atonement that the Son is making as the Spirit is strengthening the Son. Or, whenever the Spirit is regenerating, He's regenerating as the Father is called. The Father calls, the Spirit's making new, putting them into living union with Christ, who is then their righteousness. The specific act of any member of the Trinity may be distinct, but it is never divided from the work of the Trinity as a whole. Where one is working, all are working. The work Jesus does... It's the work he sees his father doing. And Jesus does that work anointed by the Spirit. In the previous chapter, Jesus told the disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me 
and to accomplish His work. Jesus expounds at great length on that in these verses ahead that we'll examine next week, Lord willing. Second doctrine, underlying that is the eternal generation of the Son. The better translation I've argued of chapter 1, verse 18, chapter 3, 16, and 17, excuse me, 114, is that Jesus is there spoken of as the only begotten Son. As man begets man, God begets God. Man has a beginning, he begets one in his own image that has a beginning. God begets in a way that we cannot fathom. He begets in his image, God. And if the one he begets has a beginning, he isn't God. So God begetting God means the one begotten is eternally begotten. So whenever Jesus says, my father, he is not speaking metaphorically. He is saying that the identity of the father is my father. Just as my identity is the son, his identity is the Father, eternally. And this is why we confess in the Nicene Creed, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial, that means with the same substance, of the same substance, with The Father. Again, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was, all things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. This is why Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, as He says in Mark 2. And the Lord of the Sabbath has come down to accomplish the work of new creation and bring them into the anticipated and longed for eternal Sabbath. And as Jesus makes this clear to them, as He makes clear to them who it was that said to the man, take up your bed and walk, they want to kill Him. John explains the purpose of this gospel saying, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is written so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ and He is the Son of God. He's the Christ. He saves from sin and undoes the curse. And He's the Son of God. He does the work of His Father. How will you receive this sign? Not believing this sign is hating it. Not believing the sign is hating Christ. Not bowing to Jesus as the Lord, the King that God has given. Not bowing to Him is rebellion. You think you're just standing there. You're not wanting, yeah, I don't want to crucify him. Don't hate him in that way. If you're just standing there, if you're not bowing, you're hating him. If you're not receiving him, 
for who he's being testified to be. If you're not receiving, you are rejecting him. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. He is the one who was crucified for sinners and rose conquering the grave. He is the one with all authority because he's done so to bring new creation and undo the curse. Refuse to believe. Cling to your sin. And whether or not you like it doesn't matter. You are numbered among those who rat on Jesus to escape blame among the eyes of this world, saving your own skin. You're among those who want to kill Jesus. That was the junction this man, these leaders were brought to at this point. It's the junction you're brought to right now as the signs put before you. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and mercy are set before you, abundant to cleanse you from every sin and to ultimately heal every disease so that you might know this God eternally. Let's pray. Holy Father, grant grace and faith and repentance right now that none would be like this Invalid who remains spiritually crippled. That we wouldn't deceive ourselves. That we're not numbered among those who would have Jesus dead. Because we would be God ourselves. Father, grant... We are people, hearts full of gratitude and praise, to say afresh and anew, we believe and worship your only begotten, in whose name we plead, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.